0: Welcome to the Got Science podcast. I'm your host, Colleen McDonald. Our podcast survey is closed, and I want to thank those of you who sent me feedback. Lots of great ideas that we'll be reviewing in the coming months to see what we might be able to incorporate. If your sticker hasn't arrived, don't worry, it's on the way. Today's episode came about because of a conversation with a colleague of mine. He mentioned in passing the new nuclear weapon the administration just built. My jaw dropped to the floor, and I knew we needed to get Dr. Lisbeth Gronland on the podcast to tell us how this is possible. And Katie Love is back with This Week in Science History, so stick around after the interview for that. President Trump's fiscal year 2020 budget plan, submitted to Congress in March, proposes an expansion of U.S. nuclear weapons capabilities. And that's a scary sentence to say out loud. It hasn't passed yet, of course, and there's already a lot of controversy over cuts to vital programs like food aid. At the Union of Concerned Scientists, we've also been looking at the funding increases in the president's proposed budget. Here's a doozy for you. The budget requests $750 billion, that's with a B, for national defense, and asks for funding increases in certain areas. The largest such increase in requested defense and energy spending is within the National Nuclear Security Administration, where the budget calls for the department to be given $12.4 billion to finish developing new nuclear missile systems, including low-yield nuclear weapons. But wait, you might be thinking, don't we have treaties and agreements that keep the United States from adding to our nuclear arsenal? You might be thinking, how can we afford to build new nuclear weapons if we can't afford to fund food aid for families? You also might be thinking, low-yield nuclear weapons don't sound as bad as, say, high-yield nuclear weapons, and we need to spend money on defense, so what's the problem? To help me understand why low-yield nuclear weapons are not a great line item on any budget, I checked with my colleague Dr. Lisbeth Gronland, a brilliant physicist who's also co-director of the Global Security Program here at UCS. We talked about different types of atomic bombs and their launching devices, the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, and how the real-life work of creating plutonium bears no resemblance to the Simpsons and how to laugh instead of cry over the absurdity of a lot of U.S. nuclear policies. Elizabeth, thanks for joining me on the podcast. I'm so happy to be here. So I recently learned from a colleague that the U.S. has developed a new nuclear weapon, a low-yield, meaning less powerful, I assume, nuclear weapon. So what's up with that? I, I have so many questions about that, but
1: let's start with the actual weapon. What is it? this weapon will go on a missile that's launched from a submarine and it will replace one of the larger warheads that are on it so its explosive power is about six and a half so-called kilotons and that's the equivalent of kilotons of high explosives so that's the relevant factor the bombs that destroyed hiroshima and nagasaki were about 15 to 20 kilotons so it's lower than those. It's definitely not very small. Why create a smaller one? Well, the U.S. has small ones. Uh, we have had small ones for many, many decades. And in fact, during the Cold War, the U.S. and NATO believed that uh, the Soviet Union had a much more powerful conventional army and that they could invade Western Europe and that the US and NATO needed to have something to prevent that from happening and they believed it was nuclear weapons. And so at its peak, the US had about 7,000 nuclear weapons in Europe of all stripes, nuclear howitzers, nuclear short range missiles and bombs. And we no longer have that many, but we still have about 150 bombs in Europe uh, that have low-yield options. So it is really in the context of kind of a nuclear war fighting scenario where Russia might do something with its conventional forces and the U.S. and NATO feel that their only option is to respond with a small nuclear weapon. Wow, I had no idea the U.S. was so ready to use nuclear weapons in a conventional war. Yes, and and in fact, the U.S. and NATO have annual exercises where they exercise these nuclear options. So these are, the U.S. bombs are at air bases in several countries under U.S. custody, but if they were to be used, they would be delivered by NATO pilots using NATO aircraft. So in essence, the U.S. would kind of hand them over. So what's new about our strategy under President Trump? The new thing under the Trump administration is that they want the military to more closely integrate their conventional and nuclear exercises and preparations. And the idea is that the NATO and U.S. forces would then be able to continue to fight if a nuclear weapon had been used. So we don't have, I know we've
0: worked toward getting a no-first-use, I'm not sure what you call it, a treaty, a policy? A policy. A policy. It would be a policy. And that has been unsuccessful.
1: Yes, that has been unsuccessful. Over the years, the U.S. has narrowed the countries it would uh, use nuclear weapons against and the reasons. Back, you know, in the beginning, it was sort of anything goes. And we considered using nuclear weapons in a conflict Uh, well, in the the Korean War, and all kinds of scenarios. And then leading up to the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, which is a treaty that most of the signatories don't have nuclear weapons, and they promise not to get them. And five of the signatories have nuclear weapons. It's the U.S., Russia, China, Britain, and France, and they promise to get rid of them. And it occurred to those five that maybe if they still had the option of using nuclear weapons against these countries that didn't have any, it would be a disincentive for them to sign the treaty, to say, I'm never going to get them because... They might feel like having that option would prevent these five states from targeting them. And so leading up to that, and in particular in years after, the U.S. has made public statements that it will not use nuclear weapons against countries that are in the Non-Proliferation Treaty without nuclear weapons.
0: Did we have to reduce what we
1: have? No. So the treaty... In a way, it sought to codify the status quo. And there were promises, in particular, of moving towards disarmament and also providing access to nuclear technology for nuclear power, nuclear reactors, and things like that.
0: So having grown up in the 70s, I mean, I recall being really scared that nuclear weapons destroying the planet was a real thing. Yes. And the narrative I remember, and I'm, I'm not sure how accurate this is, but I remember thinking that the idea was the Soviet Union would launch a bunch of nuclear weapons at our big cities and destroy many, many people, civilians. Mm-hmm. And then once they did that, we would send a bunch of nuclear bombs there to mm-hmm. destroy them. And to me, it felt very much like the end of the world. It could have been. As we know it. (laughs) And with that being the way that we were thinking of it, Mm -hmm. we figured, well, nobody's going to shoot a weapon first because it's going to be the destruction of the planet.
1: Right. And people call that theory mad. Mutual assured destruction.
0: But these smaller weapons, it feels very troubling to me. What is the strategy? I mean, you talked about it a little bit a few right. minutes ago, but right. it seems like we're making it much more likely yes. that something will happen.
1: Yes. It lowers the barrier to entry, basically. And the argument, of course, you know, the U.S. military is is not going to say, well, this is so it, it will be easier for us to begin but rather that if we don't have these weapons, it will be easier for Russia to begin, because Russia also has small ones. So in its arsenal already, the U.S. has bombs that have a variable yield. You can, you can set it before you drop the bomb. On the low end is 0.3 kilotons, which is 2% of the weapons that destroyed Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So small on the scale of nuclear weapons. And then we have the option of 1.5, 5, 5, and 10. And so this new one is six and a half. And the argument the military makes is that if we don't have that 6.5, that Russia will believe that it can use small nuclear weapons because we won't respond. So that we need, there'll be a gap There's a gap there. And so I'm not making this up. It really is as crazy as it sounds. You're describing the look on my face right now. (laughs) Right,
0: right. If I understand this correctly, Russia might use a nuclear weapon of some size. Yes. And if we don't
1: have a 6.5, somehow they are going to believe that there is a gap that they can, quote unquote, exploit I mean, these are arguments that are very hard to get. I mean, you know, what do you do except laugh? And that's not very effective. I mean, most weapons, it takes, you know, years to develop, and then you have to produce them. And But this one, unfortunately, was a really quick deal. This raised another question, and that is testing. Because they've
0: built it, but mm-hmm. they can't test it. How do you even know that it works? Right.
1: The U.S.— Conducted over a thousand explosive tests uh, until testing was banned. Um, all of those tests were to uh, take a new design and basically just prove that it worked. Beyond that, trying to understand the reliability of these weapons would take so many tests that that was impossible. When you say prove that it worked, did right. they actually blow them up? They sure did. Okay. Yeah, initially in the atmosphere. Right. I mean, I do and then underground. That. Yes. Okay. But the part they blew up, so uh, our weapons, most weapons in the world, are called hydrogen weapons. Unlike the bombs that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, they were atomic weapons. So they only involve fission, which in in this case you could basically break apart plutonium or uranium atoms, and that releases a lot of energy. But if you want to get a really, really powerful weapon, you have to go beyond that and you start with this fission process, and then that in turn, the energy released, kicks off a fusion process. It fuses hydrogen atoms, which is why they're called hydrogen bombs. Okay, so you've got a two-part process. Two parts, that's right. And people call it the first stage and the second stage. So as I said, the U.S. currently has hydrogen warheads on the submarines. It happens that they are being refurbished now, so they are all being taken apart and put back together. You know, the factory floor is busy. And, and this is where a new design comes in. They can take them apart, and they don't have to put them back
0: exactly as they Well, that's they came what apart. they're doing
1: now. That's, okay. what, that's what they're doing with this weapon. And to make this less powerful 6.5 weapon, they are basically removing the second stage in essence. Okay, so you don't need to do more testing of the weapon itself. It's very quick and they are nearing the end of production if they haven't already finished producing it. So now they have this explosive piece that has to go in a warhead, has to go on the missile, has to go on the sub, which takes time and additional training. So it's not out to sea yet. It is sitting in a warehouse.
0: So, Lizbeth, You're a physicist. If you were developing or refurbishing this bomb, Mm -hmm. would you be content without ever testing it that it was going to work and and explode and do what it's supposed to do?
1: Yes, because the the big ones have been tested. And the main thing that you are worried about if you're a weapon designer is the first stage. If you get that right, it's guaranteed the second stage will okay. operate so it's really about the the first stage and the
0: first stage they're not they haven't redesigned it. they're just putting it back together with less
1: or they've taken stage two off which is for making these it- new for these new weapons okay. okay yeah so you know there's another plan for a new nuclear weapon in Trump's nuclear post review which would entail designing a new weapon it's off in the future if it ever happens. But this particular idea was, you know, at exactly the right or wrong time, depending on how you looked at it.
0: We'll be back in a moment with the second half of our interview. The Got Science Podcast is brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. More at gotsciencepodcast.org. You can find us in all the usual places, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, PRX, and other places where you get your podcasts. If you'd like to see a visual representation of our nuclear forces in lentils to see just how pointless this new weapon is, check us out on Twitter at GotScienceUCS. And now let's get back to our interview. Uranium or plutonium? Which one, are they the same? Why would you use one over the
1: other? Uh, no, they're different elements like silver and gold. You, you need less plutonium. It's a more sophisticated design, which is why countries that are starting out often will use uranium. And so all of our weapons, the first stage, has a plutonium pit, is what they call it, it's spherical with a uh, opening in the middle, And that is what fissions and then uh, provides the energy for the second stage. What is it
0: when you mine, do you mine plutonium?
1: You don't mine plutonium. Plutonium does not exist. It is made by humans in nuclear reactors. So the first plutonium was produced during World War II as part of the Manhattan Project. And it is produced in all reactors. What do you use to make it? You put in uranium, and then there are neutrons that are captured by the uranium, and some of it turns into plutonium. So you have to get the
0: uranium first. You have
1: to get the uranium Where of the ground. Do you get that? Okay. Oh, it, there's uranium ore, a lot of places.
0: And you can go mine it
1: without any danger. Can you pick it up and... Oh, there's dust you don't want to breathe in that mm-hmm. has uranium. I mean, I think all mining has problems. <laughs> Um, but it's not. It's not like on The Simpsons where it's
0: glowing green no, and you know if not you touch glowing it, green. it's going no. to. Uh, no, no, okay. it's not.
1: I mean, you have to take precautions, right. obviously, but it's not glowing green. Give us
0: a sense of how many nuclear weapons we have right now. I, I want mm-hmm. a picture of what we have, right. sizes, where they are.
1: Right. are. Are they ready to go right away? Right. Are they in storage somewhere? Right. So the U.S. has about 1800 weapons that are ready to go. It has 400 on land-based missiles, each one is in a silo in the middle of the country. It has about a thousand missiles on submarines and then it also has bombs and air-launched cruise missiles, which is just what it sounds like, a cruise missile launched by an airplane. On top of that, It has uh, weapons and storage, same kinds of weapons and storage. And those are, people call them strategic, which really just means they're long range and they would be intended for use in a war with Russia or China. In addition, the U.S. has what are called tactical nuclear weapons, which are short range. It has about 150 bombs at U.S. air bases in Europe, and it has the same bombs in storage in the US. So altogether, about 4,000. Russia has a comparable number of strategic weapons. They have more, we believe, they have more tactical weapons. And all the US-Soviet and US-Russian agreements have only covered deployed strategic, nothing in storage. And there's been no arms control uh, about these shorter range systems.
0: So we've talked about this, this new low yield
1: weapon. What else is on the table? So under the Obama administration, he laid out a plan for the next 30 years. And it entailed pretty much refurbishing or replacing every element of our nuclear forces with new ones. And that goes from the warheads, to the missiles, to the submarines. And some of those things really do need replacing. For example, submarines operate at great depths, the metal is under tremendous stress, and at some point it just can't do it anymore and you need new submarines. Other things are much less defensible. And another question is, the assumption was that the U.S. would have the same level of forces. That 30 years from now, we would still have this many weapons and this many submarines and missiles. And that's shocking, actually, that the Defense Department is planning to maintain this level of weaponry into the future. And those, you know, when we produce these new upgraded weapon systems, they then— we will have a life beyond that. So we are basically putting in place an arsenal that will last for many decades at this scale. And what would you like to see? I would like to see the US reduce its arsenal, ideally hand in hand with Russia, but I don't think that's necessary. Under Obama, the Joint Chiefs decided that the US could in fact reduce its arsenal, independent of what Russia did. But they, you know, wanted to do so with Russia, and that did not come to pass. But there's no reason that U.S. security requires it to have the same number of weapons that Russia does. Really, all you need is to have some weapons that Russia could not possibly destroy, which the U.S. could then retaliate with and That would be more than enough to prevent Russia, if it had such an inclination, from attacking the U.S. with nuclear weapons. So I did a little digging
0: in the history books to learn about the START Treaty. So that stands for Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty, and it was signed in 1991 and ultimately reduced nuclear weapons between the U.S. and the Soviet Union by 80%. It expired in 2009, then in 2010, the US and Russia agreed to a replacement known as the New START
1: Treaty. So what's that? So the US and Russia signed a treaty, New START, which limits their numbers of deployed uh, long-range weapons. And it went into effect in 2011 and will expire in early 2021 and can be extended for another five years. So this is a treaty that Trump has been grumbling about. It puts identical limits on these two countries. The military is very keen on not just this treaty, but treaties, because there's verification, and they get to know what Russia's doing. And they find that very valuable. And you know, sen- uh, former Secretary of Defense Mattis, among others, uh, you know, has really made the case for arms control agreements like that. So it reduced the arsenals by about a third relative to what they had been. Do you know, are there a lot of, or are there any women weapons developers? Yes, actually, uh, I was at a meeting that I helped organize a couple of years ago and there were several weapons designers and one of them was a relatively young woman, which, you know, and she and the others do their work. Because they believe it will make the U.S. more secure. And they should believe that. It would be awful if they didn't. (laughs) Right. I was just curious,
0: though, because I was thinking about women in science and in your field. And it just made me wonder if you've been the lone woman out there
1: Well, it's interesting. When I was in graduate school, the average graduate department had about 5% women among their graduate students. I went to Cornell because it had 15%. The number has crept up over the last uh, many years, but it is, you know, it's a minority. And I think that, you know, the same holds true for weapons designers. I mean, there are not that many. The U.S. has maybe a few dozen of the people who really are designing the weapon. There's lots of other stuff that is required for you know, a nuclear weapon. There are thousands of components. But the nuclear part, there are probably a few dozen people who do that work. And I don't know for sure whether she was the only one, but there can't be many. And that's true more generally when you are in technical fields related to national security. It is... um, I imagine you've probably found yourself as the only
0: woman on Panels yes. at conferences or at meetings, well, or at
1: there are not very many people outside of the government who have a technical background who work on these issues. Of the say two dozen people who have permanent jobs in this field, there are two. I'm one, and my colleague Laura Grego is the other. So,
0: did <laughs> I did I hear this right? You and Laura are the two non governmental physicists that women women that have jobs that's fascinating <laughs> I had no idea and I know both of you yeah <laughs> well Elizabeth thank you so much for coming over to to talk to me about nuclear weapons and these new low-yield nuclear weapons I'm not feeling super happy about them right but, um, you shouldn't but I'm glad that you gave me a little bit of perspective on it
1: yeah well I'm I'm so glad to have uh, joined you
0: It's time for a short segment we call This Week in Science History with Katie Love.
2: This Week in Science History, we're going back to April 12, 1954, as the American Atomic Energy Commission, the precursor to today's Nuclear Regulatory Commission, began hearings to revoke J. Robert Oppenheimer's security clearance. Oppenheimer was a theoretical physicist who acted as the director of Los Alamos Laboratory during the Manhattan Project. Under his leadership, that World War II research led to the Trinity Test, the first successful detonation of an atomic bomb, on July 16, 1945. Years later, Oppenheimer claimed that the test brought to mind the words of the Bhagavad Gita, Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. A month after the test, the United States dropped atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Japan, killing more than 150,000 people, most of them civilians. After the war, the Atomic Energy Commission was created as a civilian agency in control of nuclear research and nuclear weapons issues. Oppenheimer had a leadership role as the chair of its advisory committee. But seeing the results of his research so starkly play out on the world stage had Oppenheimer taking stances in opposition to other government players at the Commission and beyond. He lobbied for international arms control and opposed the development of an even more powerful nuclear weapon, the hydrogen bomb. By this point, we'd entered the Cold War with the then Soviet Union. And Oppenheimer's views were controversial, as anti-communist hysteria swept the country Oppenheimer was caught up in investigations and after the 1954 hearings Oppenheimer ultimately lost his clearance and his place at the Atomic Energy Commission. He also lost the larger battle as despite Oppenheimer's and others efforts the hydrogen bomb did go forward and we ultimately ended up in an arms race that at its height had a global stockpile of more than 60,000 nuclear weapons while arms control efforts since then have helped reduce those numbers, the totals are still staggering. Today, there are around 4,000 nuclear weapons in the U.S. nuclear arsenal alone, most of them far more powerful than the bombs Oppenheimer developed and witnessed decades ago. And now, the United States plans to spend more than a trillion dollars to maintain and rebuild essentially all of its nuclear weapons. Experts fear that the plan— which includes new designs and capabilities, could fuel a new arms race, and ultimately undercut U.S. security. Go to ucsusa.org arsenal to learn more.
0: Well, that's it for this episode of the Got Science podcast. Got Science is made possible by the 130,000 members of UCS, and especially our partners for the Earth. The 12,000 supporters who make monthly contributions to Stand Up for Science. Learn more at ucsusa.org partners. Special thanks to Dr. Lisbeth Gronlund. This Week in Science History by Katie Love. Editing and Music by Brian Middleton. Additional editing by Omari Spears. Research and writing by Pamela Wirth. Our executive producer is Rich Hayes, and I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. Come find us on Twitter at GotScienceUCS. Thanks, and see you next time.